0: It is so great to be with you all today. As Pete said, we've been kind of, we've been accidentally tracking with you guys for a number of years, whether you know it or not. Um, and I've been fangirling uh, from afar for a long time. And yeah, it is very different contexts. But I think just what you are going after is a real inspiration to us, to me particularly. I, uh, I was saying earlier the, the song um, Moth to a Flame. I've, I'm obsessed with it. To the extent I know that it's got 43,000 or so plays, and I'm pretty convinced I'm about 40,000 of them. Um, there is something on it. There is something on you guys. Um, the worship life has exploded. I can feel it this morning. I mean, if I came just to like fill up and and get a dose of hope from you guys this morning, then. Then great. Hopefully, I've got something to give you in return. Um, but yeah, we in Tree of Life. Um, that's the name of the church that uh, I'm part of leading. Uh, we're a 24/7 prayer community based in Mannenberg, a township, as Pete says, on the east. Uh, suburbs of Cape Town and we've just um, had two weeks of 24-7 prayer which is big for us that's us growing up we've always done a week and come out of it exhausted but at the end of our first week we were like I think we've got it in us for another week Um, and so we the the word um, the threshold moment word Mrs. Threshold is here in the house um, has been really ministering to us and it's gone around the world, hasn't it? This, this threshold moment, this could shrink back or could step into the new realities. And, and that was a big part of us saying, let's continue this 24-7 prayer week and let's push on and let's press in. And so we are drawing from your guys' faith. And so I come here with greetings and prayers from Tree of Life in Mannenberg. They are praying for us here today um, and cannot wait to host Pete and Zach and Benj. And I've also been listening to your series. Um, So I'm I'm the most committed guy here, I think. (laughs) I've listened to your, genuinely speaking, I've listened to the entire series on the beauty of the gospel. And um, yeah, power, family, love, justice, opportunity. I love it. It's absolutely brilliant. And because I was trying to work out how to kind of relate to what you're doing here um, if you're kind of a bit bleak you've got a visiting preacher well blame God because I, I, I messaged Pete and said what are you doing on the 2nd of July and he was like actually we're looking for someone to come preach come do it so it's a bit like Fergie in the Black Eyed Peas you know when she said um, I kind of believe God's given me like this really incredible voice so if you don't think I'm a good singer blame God um, <laughs> I love that just abdicating any, yeah, so the reason I'm here, blame God. (laughs) Today we are looking at power and participation. We're looking at the power of Jesus and the participation of sharing in his sufferings. We're going to be based uh, around Philippians 3 verse 10. And really, this is, this is what we are working out as we do it, building the plane as we fly it, essentially constructing a local theology, biblical for sure, but local theology in Mannenberg, uh, where you know some uh, minister to the movers and shakers of the world, we really feel like we're ministering to the moved and shaken. And to understand, therefore, where I'm coming from this morning, I want to describe a little bit of the context of Cape Town, where I live. So Cape Town is a city with a split personality. It, uh, you've got natural beauty on the one hand and completely unnatural segregation on the other hand. It is the most segre- racially segregated city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth. Okay? So it is the deep end of some of these big issues of what is the church to be, how are we, we to show up in the world. Cape Town also often features in top 10 places to visit. Um, It's beautiful, absolutely, but equally often, it lists in the top 10 most dangerous cities in the world for homicides per 100,000 people. So do you see, it's this split personality going on. It's got some of the most extreme examples of first world luxury, the Atlantic seaboard and the glass-fronted villas and uh, infinity pools, where Pete won't be staying. But the majority, honestly, live in some of the worst examples of developing world poverty. It's kind of glitter and ghetto. And so we've made our home, my wife Sarah and I, and now I'm delighted to say our daughter Simtandile and our son Luca, um, in a township called Mannenberg, 20 kilometers outside the city center. It shouldn't exist. It was built by the apartheid regime to house those deemed non-white whose homes were bulldozed in the city center and who were forcibly removed into dormitory-style housing 20 kilometers east of the city. And when people talk about Mannenberg, because it's a community in pain at the moment and has been really since its inception, people often say, Manenberg, oh, I wouldn't go there. I don't think anything good can come out of Mannenberg. And we say, yes, they said that about Nazareth and look how that ended. <laughs> And so our life is very simple. We live in Mannenberg, We invite those in gangs and in drug addiction to come and live with us. We introduce them to Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps them get free because we, we can't do that. And then they go and tell other people. It's not quite the end. but. Um, <laughs> And what does that look like? It looks like inner healing and deliverance. It looks like the 12 steps. It looks like boxing to let all that anger out. Woodwork. If you can muster up a bit of hope for a kind of warped old floorboards to be redeemed into something beautiful, generally speaking, you can muster up a little bit of hope for your own life. Counselling, fellowship, not getting people off drugs. But introducing them to the the person that God created them to be. Introducing them to what we think might be God's preferred future for their life. And sometimes well-meaning Christians tell us we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. We shouldn't live where we live uh, and do what we do. Because gangsters and addicts are bad people. And they belong in jail for the things they've done. Now... If you're here this morning, probably you're aware that we're all bad people. It's just that some of us are saved by grace. Amen? And no one actually belongs in jail, do they? But everybody, bar none, belongs in kingdom families. And so the streets of Mannenberg often witness violent crime. And I'm, I don't want to go into lots of details, but we're learning that no scheme of the enemy can prevail where the people of God are willing to go to the hurting and the broken. Let me say that again. No scheme of the enemy can prevail where the people of God are willing to go to the hurt, hurting and the broken. And I think a story sets up what I want to teach on this morning. And this is a story from a number of years ago of a man called Uncle Henry, who I met when we were prayer walking um, the streets. Um, we, it was uh, during a gang fight, and so there was shooting on the streets, which is fairly regular occurrence, sadly. And we were praying, Lord, should we go and prayer walk today? We don't have a death wish. We're not, you know, crazy, honestly. Um, but should we be your presence on the streets today or should we pray from inside? And we, we had a strong sense that we should go onto the streets. And so we walked the streets and um, found a man on crutches hobbling. And he said to us, he shouldn't be here. We go, oh, yeah, we've heard that before. I know. And he's like, no, but this is gang fight, you know, and all of that. But we said, Well, oh, hang about. You're on crutches. What are you doing here hobbling along Manenberg Avenue? And he said, I'm trying to get home, but I fell off a roof and my leg's completely, I don't know what was wrong with it, but he couldn't walk, he was on crutches. He fell off a roof trying to fix it. I said, well, whilst we're here, arguing about whether we should be here or not, (laughs) could we pray for your leg? I suppose so, yeah. So we started praying for him, and he kind of let out a yelp as we laid hands on his leg, and he said, the pain's gone. We said, oh, brilliant. Um, And he picked up his crutches and started walking off. I thought, hang about, hang about. Uncle Henry, come back. Come back. (laughs) You know who healed you, right? Well, you did. I mean, thank you very, sorry, thank you, yes. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 that was our friend Jesus. We were praying to Jesus. Oh, Jesus healed me, yes. Why do you think he did that? Well, I have no idea. Do you think he might love you? Oh, I suppose so. Would you like to know him better? Sure. And as we prayed for him, he broke down weeping. As we could hear bullets flying in different parts of Mannenberg, here was Uncle Henry holding his crutches, weeping as he received Jesus into his life. And off he walked, crutches under his arm. I'd love to say that's happening every day. (laughs) This is is the the, the highlight reel that Pete mentioned, Right? (laughs) To contextualize that, that happened in 2013. Like, this is 10 years ago, okay? This is not like me straight up. You know, I'm, I'm mustering up the faith for more of that. But as I say, the point of the story is that that really happened, and it offers a biblical basis to what I want to talk about today. And I'm growing up, guys. I've got slides. I've got slides. Are you ready for this? Take you Hit those slides, number one. Okay. Look at that. They get, if you like that, I'll tell you what. They, yeah, lovely colours. Why don't we read this together, guys? This is Paul in Philippians 3, verse 10. And he says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Amen, that's the word of God. So the next slide shows us what it means to want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Hands up if you want to know Christ. Everyone's hand should be up. I'm not looking there in case it's not. But where we go for our peace is Christ. It's contemplation. It's Jesus. Our purpose and our healing, where we go for these things, will define how we show up in the world, right? And so this is the huge fundamental difference between social justice fueled by ideology and kingdom justice fueled by the spirit is that we never graduate beyond the contemplation or you could say presence of God in Christ. And so our starting place and our ending place is the love of Jesus, always. Our belovedness, as Henry Nouwen would say, knowing that we are beloved, knowing that nothing can make him love us more and we can't do anything to mess it up so he would love us less. That There's no disillusionment with God about our lives because he isn't, has no illusions in the first place. He absolutely believes in us and as we contemplate and know Jesus better, we begin to reduce the number of thoughts in our head about ourselves that are not in his head about us. You could say, as Francis Spufford wrote, the noise we hear pours into the noise we make. The words of God and the the belovedness that he pours into us is what we pour out into the world, right? Which is why, can you see, kingdom justice, which we'll get to, is going to be so much different to just um, social justice fueled by ideology or kind of angst. And what this means is that prayer, in all its forms really is everything. And I say that as someone who, if you could only see the hours spent scrolling in my life compared to the minutes spent praying. Honestly, I'm confessing, like no jokes. I want to become a man of prayer and I know that prayer is everything and yet the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Maybe you can relate. But whether it's intercession or contemplation, whether it's silence or thankfulness, Whether it's testimony, whatever it is, there is a prayer type for every personality type. And so please don't think, oh, I'm an extrovert, so I'm an evangelist. No, you may well be, but it begins and it ends in prayer. And here's the thing. If spiritual disciplines truly change us internally, then they'll always turn our perspective outward to living with and caring for the most vulnerable around us. That is just conventional Christianity. But also, slide, the next slide shows us that as we contemplate Jesus, as we abide in him, we become aware of heaven's perspective. We are, Paul writes elsewhere, seated in heavenly places. And as we abide in God's presence, connected to the vine, as Jesus spoke beautifully about in John 15, we become increasingly aware of heaven all around us, the kingdom of God breaking forth. And our Limited imagination connects with God's unlimited power. And that is what sparks faith for the impossible, right? So why are you doing worship evenings every Monday, worship and prayer? Because as you abide, as you soak, as you say, you know what? I'm turning my phone off to be fully present to you, Lord. Guess what happens? He turns up the temperature and the thermostat rises and someone walks in and goes, flipping heck, I had no idea God was real and he's in this place right? This is the culture, the, 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 the awareness, the atmosphere, if you like, of heaven that you are stewarding and growing in. I can feel it even if you can't. I can feel it. And with this faith comes a desire to do what Jesus did, right? And so it's very simple. It's just quite hard to do. Acts 10.38 tells us that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That is the aim of us on earth, is to do good and heal all under the power of the devil. And, you know, we can discuss what that means. But evangelism, deliverance, physical healing of bodies done in the power of God. This isn't fringe charismania. This is not something that, you know, the patron saint of the vineyard, you know, the... um, um, chubby bearded white guys do. This is for everybody. This is for absolutely everybody. And it is normal. It is not fringe weird stuff. But without the Holy Spirit, we are redundant. Because Holy Spirit empowers us to bring solutions to problems that the world itself created and yet cannot solve. And I think of a friend who had a problem that he could not solve. He had been on heroin, was smoking a a large amount of heroin and was um, getting more heroin from a prolific heroin dealer who lived across the road from us. And I was telling this story the other day and I thought, the interesting thing is, 13 years later, that heroin dealer knows Jesus. We had been praying for him for years and then he came to faith and he comes to our revival evenings every third Friday sometimes. And so... Prayer really is everything, but this friend of mine was basically trying to deal for this guy when this guy was dealing. And but he was so addicted, he was just smoking all the product himself, which is a bad, bad strategy, whatever business you're in. And, um, and, but you know, I've just shared with you, haven't I? That the, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. I can relate to his smoking of all the heroin, not because I've been on heroin, but because we're in the same boat. The gospel is the leveler for each of us. And so, um, so we said, well, listen, um, we don't know what to do, but we've heard that the Holy Spirit is stronger than heroin. So we've got a 24-7 prayer room. Come, and one of us will sleep next to you throughout the night in the 24-7 prayer room. And when you wake up cold-turking from heroin, we'll just pray with you in tongues. And you can pray in tongues with us, if you like. And we did that for 7 to 10 days. And as he woke up... Yeah, I mean, it takes a bit of time, but... <laughs> Um, but we're all in, right? I mean, that. What else would you rather do with your evenings? Um, and, and, and he woke up, started, um, you know, joint pain, cold turkey, with would pray in tongues, he would pray in tongues, and he'd go back to sleep. I've become a father, as I mentioned, obsessed with my children. Um, and it's a little bit like a kid wakes up crying you give them milk and then they go back down you know it was it was a version of that it was a kind of spiritual reparenting of a man who really had no power in his own self he was powerless and yet the holy spirit showed up ideally by the way you have three people detoxing someone off heroin one is sort of making the tea answering the door one is sleeping and the other one sitting with the person cold turkey and praying with them in tongues. And after about three hours, you just rotate. Seven to ten days should do it. You're welcome. (laughs) Of course we have nurses, psychiatrists, etc. Valid point. (laughs) I don't want to be flippant, but at the same time, there really isn't a medical solution for a spiritual problem. Anyone who medicates on anything, and as I say, confession, I medicate through scrolling and chardonnay every now and then, and ultimately, it's a a disordered desire, it's an attachment to something other than God, it's an idol. It's just that heroin is particularly harmful. So I think more of this revival spirit, I think of the healing of bodies, physical healings. My friend Cynthia had sciatica nerve pain, and she couldn't walk properly, and had a sort of wonky hip I don't know exactly what it was but her husband Leon had to physically lift her up to take her to the bathroom when she was pregnant because the the baby as it grew would press on various uh, you can tell I'm an expert at this right but um you know the, the more pregnant she got the more painy it got and so um she hadn't run for six years and was in constant pain we were at our core team uh weekend away one year and we were like, where's Cynthia? She's not at the meeting. And she was in the bath. That was the only place she could go to feel kind of weightless and painless. And so we were like, oh man, we really need to just send her to a doctor. This isn't good for her. It's, you know, And then my friend Claire, with much more faith than me, I was cooking eggs, I think, at the time. And, um, and sort of my toast was about to pop up. And you know, I was like, right, I'm full on, on this breakfast thing. And she was like, why don't we go pray for Cynthia? And I'm like... Oh. And honestly, I said no. I was like, I... I I don't have the faith for it, but go for it. I'll hold the fort here in the kitchen. And, um, <laughs> and they went and prayed for Cynthia. And as I was putting my, I remember this really clearly, as I was putting my plate into the dishwasher, kind of stifling an eggy burp, <laughs> I looked, looked out of the window, and there was Cynthia in the pouring rain, running across the lawn of this house we were staying in. And I ran outside, and I just had a rant in our core team meeting about how we weren't seeing anything supernatural. And, and Claire, Claire turned to me and she just said, is that supernatural enough for you? And I was like, oh, I hate that, but I love it. Um, and then Leon, Cynthia's husband, just sort of ran up to her. And he's, he's huge. We call him Baloo, because he's massive. You must get a hug from Leon one year. <laughs> And he just enveloped Cynthia in his arms and she just folded and wept and wept and wept. And it really was six years of just disappointment, doctor's bills, getting worse, unanswered questions in that moment dissipated in the power and love of Jesus. And this is conventional Christianity, the power of God. She was at two weddings recently dancing the night away all night. It was brilliant. And so this is one side to our faith. This is the power. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Next one, please. Because as we become aware of the world around us, we lament. This is the flip side. Kath, there's a, it's, well, take a photo right at the end because that's got everything on it there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, are you taking all of them? I can give you the slides, it's fine. <laughs> um, so contemplating Christ lead, like, makes us abide in heaven's culture, the awareness of heaven, for things that is impossible for us to do in our own strength. You actually spoke on the power of the Spirit, didn't you? Come on. But also, it should lead us to lament for the world around us. You know that song, uh, the, 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 the classic uh, song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow in the light of his glory and grace. Yes, and the next verse, which I doubt anyone knows, his word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. We only quote the first one, which leaves us with 50% of our salvation. We need to go to the world that we're lamenting for and we need to harness the revival power that we have into a spirit of activism. Remember, not based on just angst and bitterness from any ideology, but because we've been contemplating Jesus, we are full on his life and love and we are beloved and so we share in his sufferings with the world which means that we're not just healing physical bodies, we're playing our part in healing memories, undoing systems of injustice, which means that we're not just getting people into heaven, but we're saying, what about life before death as well? Which means we're not just going for demonic deliverance from uh, heroin or whatever, but actually saying each one of us needs to be delivered from the systems that entangle us. This is the other side of things. We breathe Jesus in and he sends us out. We get his refreshing presence and we breathe out his glory and grace into the world. It doesn't take much more than a cursory glance at the news to realize what a mess we're in. But I believe it's only an activism that is fueled from contemplation that will release hope in the world. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get angry though. We probably need to be a little bit more angry. And I say that, honestly, we probably need to be a bit more joyful as well. Let's, right? It's both and. You're getting the point of the message at the point. But St. Augustine wrote this, apparently. It's debated whether he said it. but Because hope and anger are not opposed. He said, hope has two beautiful daughters. Have you heard of hope's beautiful daughters? Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they don't remain that way. And so a righteous anger gives us the courage to engage with the death-creating systems of the world and bring hope in a place of despair. Why? Well, because we want to know Christ and we are contemplating him and everything begins and ends in Jesus. And so along with bodies and healing bodies, we need to play our part in the healing of memories. Does anyone here speak German? A bit. Okay, I won't give this to you then. This is, I've got my German friend who told me about how to pronounce a word. If I put this up to my phone, will it, will it work? Okay, so there's a, there's a word in German, and this is my friend Rene telling you how to pronounce the word and what it means, Okay. I meant to make a slide, but this is the next best thing. Okay? Hey, Pete. Um, Well, the the word you're referring to, it's uh, pronounced Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Vergangenheitsbewältigung. So, and your translation actually is is pretty accurate. Vergangenheit is most past, right? Past. And Bewältigung is kind of if you deal with something... um, Difficult Yeah, so did you get that? Vergangenheitsbewältigung means the struggling to deal with the past. Germans have these incredible, really long words for like whole essays, basically. And and so in Germany, as one can imagine, post-World War II. This word spoke into the heartache of the German nationality in unearthing what was it that got us to fall for this Nazi thing and how do we as a nation heal in a denazification? That's Vergangenheitsbewaltigung, right? South Africa has the same thing. We tried it with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but ultimately, whilst the law of apartheid was dismantled in 1994, the spirit of apartheid continues to live on. We need de-apartheidification. Both in the seemingly small, but actually not, microaggressions of white people to people of color in the country, but also the seemingly impossible, but actually not, restitution of land and resources, to name a couple of biggies. So to give you an example of where I live in South Africa, 7% of the population is white, and they own 72% of the land. Or to put it the other way, black South Africans make up 80% of the population and own 4% of the land. And this is a country where 80% of people claim to be Christians. So we've got to be reading our Bibles wrong, surely. Do we see how the healing of bodies is glorious and wonderful and yet also the healing of memories and what has been done and the arrangement of land and power and resources also needs to be changed think of the uk what about um oh i don't know um national trust houses funded by the slave trade what do we do with that think of canada um the residential school systems oppressing first nation people what do we do with that what's the church's prophetic role in society for the healing of memories and how can we, how can you, KXE, play your part in that? Because the thing is, recognizing past wrong and asking for forgiveness is empty noise if not followed by deep restitution. If something has been unjustly stolen, saying, sorry, do you forgive me? Let me wash your feet, doesn't quite cut it. We need to give back what has been stolen. We know that, we teach our children that, and yet We've got to be part of doing that on a social prophetic level, okay? So this, the social prophetic, you're thinking, what is that, Pete? Next slide, will show you. <laughs> you see how revivalism might focus on the personal prophetic, words of destiny, purpose, spiritual DNA, your calling, Pete, you are called to do this, do that, do that. God has made you a this and that, right? We're big on that. and then all, But also, the prophetic is systemic. Read any of the Old Testament prophets, and it really was speaking truth to power, yeah. right? And so the prophetic is the very thing that links the power of revival with the lament of activism. Without the prophetic, we will fall for the dichotomy, which is either I have a power encounter with Jesus in my suburban church with a thick, comfortable carpet, and I have all the weepies and all the fuzzies and all the revie bombs or whatever people call it, and and nothing really happens, or I'm, I'm, I'm only lamenting, I'm a lone prophet in the wilderness, I'm burnt out and pissed off and I'm not much fun to be around. I certainly don't have the joy of the Lord in my heart, which apparently is my strength if you believe Nehemiah. And so therefore we need to to connect it with the prophetic. We need the Holy Spirit. And can you see why one or the other just won't cut it? The church has created this false dichotomy that says one or the other. And take it from me, it's exhausting being caught in the middle, not being swirly enough for the, act, uh, for the revivalists and not being angry enough for the activists. And, and, and it's exhausting, but we've got to pull it together in a prophetic third way, which I believe is the kingdom, guys. Because a heavenly perspective combines with the earthly engagement. Glory and grit come together, right? Each enmeshed gloriously in the other by the prophetic, the voice of God. And so then the prophetic can be birthed both personal and systemic. Words of knowledge, destiny, and wisdom. That's the personal thing. And it can be systemic. We call out unjust laws, systems, and practices. Both need each other. Next slide. This is, the, this, is, this is the final one, Kath. Get that phone out. <laughs> past, present, and future. Revivalism's relationship to the past would be moves of God. We look at um, Azusa. We look at the Hebridean revival. We look at whatever... Present is more church and spiritual, reviving the church. And yet activism says, well, hang about. Yes, as we look at moves of God in the past, let us not forget historic injustice. I'm forgetting about you guys. I can't see your screen though. And then the future, what does it look like? As we remember, 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 this is the word God spoke to the Israelites all the time. Remember moves of God. As we do that, we'll have faith for the historical injustice that has been formed. As we look at reviving the church in the present, we will be interested in affairs of the state. Civil servants, you are prophets into systems. And the future, what does the future hold? Well, all things are being made new. It looks like a revived church rewiring the culture. Amen? Both of these things coming together. And if you think I've created a false dichotomy, and it does look like that a little bit sometimes, remember what Martin Luther King said. He said, life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. And that, my friends, is what we need to go after. As with Paul, we say, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So, in conclusion, I have missed out a little bit that says this, becoming like him in his death. Ugh, gulp. It was all going so well. Let me ask you, is what you're living for worth dying for? Is it? Because John 10, 10, is a very tweetable soundbite. I've come to give you life and all its fullness and its abundance. So we go yes and amen, and there is nothing wrong with that. And perhaps like me, you have experienced that in your life. It feels good, doesn't it, that, that, that offer of abundant life? What does it, well, what does it look like? And that's the convenience of cherry-picking one verse out of a passage. If you read on, Jesus tells us. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If we keep reading, we see it again and again. I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 15. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life, right? So what's the difference between a glorious gospel of revivalism and activism linked by the prophetic and simple self-help or kind of promises of manifesting your best life now what is the difference one word actually it's death death is the doorway through which we act we access all of this the paradox of abundant life is that it's hidden in the most unsuccessful looking things Laying down your life leads to fullness. Becoming like Jesus in his death leads to resurrection. Participation in Jesus' suffering leads to power. Viktor Frankl, the well-known Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist wrote that success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue, you and it only does so as an unintended side effect of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. For us, that person is Jesus. Now, don't, you don't have to run out of here and become a nun or anything, or you don't have to kind of find ways to create unnecessary suffering in your life. Because as if to kind of preempt that kind of angst, Jesus says, he restates it. He says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Like Jesus, each one of us has free will and freedom to lay our lives down if we want. Jesus can't make you do anything you don't want to do. He couldn't in the Bible, he can't now. That's where he limits himself. That's the meekness of God. So to end, three quotes from some spiritual giants. Jackie Pullinger, a lady who models this, 50 years working with heroin addicts and triad gang members said this, if you've known the love of God, if you've tasted of his sweetness, there's no other way to serve him except giving up your life. And this is voluntary. This isn't the sentence of death at all. We're not sentenced to death. We're just privileged to answer his call. He's not gonna force you to, but he's handing, a bit like repentance. He's not gonna force you to repent, but my goodness, when you repent, you feel better. My goodness, when you repent, you understand what intimacy with God looks like. C.S. Lewis says, nothing that you've not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that hasn't died will ever be raised from the dead. And Jesus himself says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single grain. But if it dies, it will yield a rich harvest. So I wanna finish by telling you a story of my friend Munir. Munir is a wonderful but troubled man. He has a pretty gnarly looking face. His one eye looks a bit like a sort of pickled onion because he was stabbed in the eye multiple times after he left prison, where he had been for about 10, 15 years, for firing um, machine guns at the police back as a teenager. So, if you're worried about your teenager, you know, there's. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about that. Um, and I was living in Manenberg at the time. I just moved in. And he said, Could I come stay with you? I said, Of course. He was on heroin. He was a Muslim. He was a prison gangster and a street gangster and the. It doesn't matter what gang he was in. I said, Of course. But on one proviso, we read the gospel together every morning. We read scripture. He's like, Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Love to. And that morning, we were um, reading the parable of the sower. And, you know, uh, without going into details, I'm sure you know it. If you don't read it, it's brilliant. Uh, But ultimately, the question Jesus leaves you with is, which soil are you? Are you the good soil? Are you the rocky soil? Are you the the seed falling on the path? Which are you? Now, um, Munir didn't know which one he was. He was pretty convinced he was the bad soil. And I said, well, should we pray that Jesus, you actually, like, do you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus and he can turn you into good soil? He said, well, no, I can't do that. And I said, why not? And he said, well, I've made two lifelong commitments. One is Islam and the other is prison gangsterism, which you join through blood covenant. So, I mean, it really is demonic. And he was right. It's a very um, incisive sort of thing to say. And I said, okay, fine, but... um, well, should we pray then, uh, sort of pivoting, <laughs> should we pray then that Jesus shows you why neither of those valid lifelong commitments need be obstacles to you giving your life to following him? Should we pray that? Okay, I, I mean, he wanted me to shut up at this point. He's like, whatever, sure. So I just said, Lord, show him that being a prison gangster and being a Muslim does not preclude him from your kingdom if he gives his life to follow you. And we went our own ways, and he walked off, and I went to work or whatever, and um, came back in the afternoon. I said, Munir, how's your day been? He said, yeah, the the weirdest thing happened to me, you know, down on Manenberg Avenue at the roundabout. I said, oh yeah, what? He said, well, these four guys started walking up to me, and they were wearing suits and holding these like big books. So I thought, oh, they must be Christians. But then he goes, but they had prison gang tattoos all over their face and neck and hands. And their names were like Abu Bakr, Ikshan, Muhammad, and Shiraj. I'm making them up. (laughs) And he said, so they were obviously in prison gangs and Muslim, but they looked like Christians. And they came up to me and they just said, I've never seen them before. They just said, look, sorry, we've not met you, but we feel like God is saying to you, I'm opening a door in front of you and you need to walk through it. And they said, we used to be Muslims and prison gangsters, all four of us, but we really sense that God is saying to you to follow his son, Jesus. So Munir comes back and he goes, yeah, so anyway, that was my afternoon. And I'm like... (laughs) I said, do you think God might have answered our prayer this morning? He goes, oh my God, oh wow! Yeah, I suppose he did. Right, so you're thinking... He got on his knees and wept like Uncle Henry. Well, I still know him. That was 13 years ago. He still hasn't bowed the knee to Jesus. He's further into drugs. He's had more children. He's got a couple more bullet wounds. Here's the thing, guys. However much this looks like a nice, neat little diagram, when the rubber hits the road with real people and real lives, it isn't just a simple... Flowchart or whatever you can miss it you can refu- you can refuse him even if the invitation is that clear. Jesus cannot make you do something you are unwilling to do and so that 's really all i 've got, but what I want to do as we land this and start praying if, have we got time to do five minutes yeah um could we, could we stand? We'll do that thing. Stand, band knows what to do. And in form, this looks very familiar, doesn't it? We're standing, the band comes up, tinkles, and then we, you know. But, But may I, and if you have to go, of course, please leave. But those of us who are still here, what I really sense the invitation from God is that maybe there are some of us who actually can even trace it to a word 13 years ago, to an event 13 years ago, where we know God asked us to do something and was laying on a plate something he had for us. And if we are truly honest and really candid with ourselves, we will admit that we have been running for that long. Maybe it's not as dramatic as that. Maybe it's just like you can sense, like B was saying, the, the vibrations, the resonance of the voice of God. And yet, there are a whole bunch of very reasonable commitments or vows you have made that seem like obstacles in you taking that plunge. Ultimately, past the threshold. And I really believe that today is the day to set that right.